Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. Before I read that scripture and while you're turning to it, I want to bring you up to speed on uh, where we are because I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Uh, At the beginning of that chapter, 27, it says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And uh, what I want to point out is, notice it says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. Now, those of you that have been here from the uh, beginning of going through the book of Acts, uh, you may remember that it is written by... Luke, and uh, Luke was a a physician, but also a very careful historian, and so uh, it's likely that that's who is speaking here. So he was on uh, the journey with with the Apostle Paul. Uh, There was a book written in 1848 called The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. Now, I, I don't have that book, but I read about that book, and uh, it, it's by a guy named James Smith, and he concludes that the writer of this section, um, uh, here's, here's what he says about it. He says, uh, uh, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man not a sailor could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation. So here's what he's saying is that uh, uh, whoever wrote this, and it's evident that it was uh, Luke, uh, if you read the first part of the chapter, and especially you who are sailors, you need to read through that later today. It reads like a log or a, a travel log at the very least, maybe not an official log because he's saying, you know, it doesn't, doesn't sound like a sailor, but what it does sound like is uh, somebody who had to have been an eyewitness of what was going on. And all that does is that just affirms the authorship, it affirms that what we have here, this isn't just a story that somebody made up at some point, this is a historical uh, account. Um, So what took place in in the first uh, verses, and it actually goes through 27 and uh, 28, is he's on a voyage to Rome as a prisoner. He was a prisoner because of Uh, charges brought against him by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And in order to get any kind of a safe trial, he appealed to Rome. And so they said, okay, to Rome you'll go then. And this was all a part of God's plan. And if you read through that first part, you will see it doesn't look like he's ever going to get there. And ultimately, the part we're reading today is... uh, Uh, right before a shipwreck, and it's as if, well, yeah, we 
We know in some sense that that's the plan for Paul to get to Rome, but how in the world is it possibly going to happen? So he's on the ship. They're sailing to Rome. Um, In the early weeks of the trip, the wind was against them. So by the time they got to Crete, they're way behind and uh, still very far away. It's the end of September, and uh, in the Mediterranean, in the fall and winter, it's uh, very dangerous because of the kinds of storms that can come up. He warned them. He said, you know, we, we need to stay here, but they insisted on going and set out, and almost immediately after they set out, they were enveloped in a northeaster. Um, I know, that's, you don't say northeaster, but that's what it said. You know, I'm, sailors, you're going to say, it's a nor'easter, you know, I know. But uh, that's what it was. And what that was was just a hurricane force wind, and that's where we are picking it up with verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, uh, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore, which, by the way, would, be, would have been very common. You know, they didn't necessarily, their, their vessels weren't big, you know, seaworthy vessels, a lot of them that could sail straight across. They would sail kind of along uh, the shore, uh, verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along, running under uh, the lee of a small island called Kada. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground uh, on uh, the Sirtis, Uh, They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Now, that's serious. You know, you you jettison the cargo when you think, we got to do this or or it's likely we're going to sink. Uh, Verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I always find that funny, you know. Well, God inspired him and he said, You should have listened. I'm sure that was the last thing they wanted to hear at that moment. Uh, and not uh, set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now remember, they had just said they'd lost all hope. He says, the ship's gone, but uh, you'll be okay. Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground 
on some island. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you um, teach us from this passage, from this account of what actually took place, will you show us uh, more of yourself? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to still pull us ahead a little bit before we start pulling out of the passage uh, what, uh, you know, lessons are there for us. So, uh, they're on their 14th night, still being driven across the sea. They took soundings. They were afraid they'd be dashed against the rocks. And then down in verse uh, 30, it says this, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of uh, laying out anchors from the bow, (laughs) you see what's going on? You know, they're saying, oh, let's lay out the anchors. And while they're letting, letting down a, a way off the ship, uh, they knew everybody uh, couldn't fit on that. Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. There it goes. You know, that's our, our only hope. And then down to verse 34, it says, uh, therefore, I urge you to take some food For it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So then they run aground, the ship is destroyed, but everybody gets ashore safely. Uh, Those that could swim, swam. Those that couldn't swim, grabbed a piece of the boat and floated in. Um, And they were all safe, 276 of them, which is pretty amazing. And uh, to this day, that place is called St. Paul's Bay. Now, what do we get out of this passage? Uh, All through the book of Acts, we have been reminded that when it comes to narratives, when it comes to historical uh, parts of the Scripture, that we don't want to fall into the problem of saying, well, you know, they did this, so we should do this. So you don't look at that and say, well, okay, next time I'm on a ship that, you know, a nor'easter hits. That's not, that's not what we see here. And also, you have to be careful in pulling doctrine out of narrative passages. In other words... Uh, if you see something being taught in a narrative passage, it may be a true doctrine, but you want to look in the teaching passages of Scriptures to confirm that. But you don't just look in the narrative passage and say, well, it happened then, so that must be a doctrine, because you can fall into real error by, by doing that. And so, you know, the question then is, well, what do we get out of it? We we look at their behavior. Well, why can't you look at their, what was going on with them and say, well, it happened for them, and so that's how we are to act. In a sense, we did that last week in talking about Paul's testimony. Well, the problem is that narratives and historical passages of Scripture, they, they do include good things that we can use as example. 
But they also include uh, dumb things that people did, sinful things that people did. And so you don't want to say, well, there it is right in the Scripture. No, it's a, it's a record of what actually took place. So what's the best way? What's the most, to use a pun, what's the most solid ground here uh, for us to learn what's here for us? Well, here's what you do in narrative passages. You say, what does this passage teach us about God? What does this passage teach us about Christ? What does it teach us about our own fallen condition? And if you pull those things out of the passage, then you have an application. And that's what we want to look at here. Now, here's our approach today. We're going to talk about God's presence, His possessiveness, and His providential promise-keeping. Yeah, three Ps, and I want to apologize ahead of time. I usually don't do that. I don't have the gift of alliteration, but it just happened this week. So uh, here we have, uh, first of all, looking at God's presence with his people. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So here he is in, in the middle of real trouble, real trial. Uh, from a human perspective, it looks like I'm never going to reach Rome. I'm going to die right here. And then God shows his presence with him. Now, if that sounds familiar, that passage, it's because a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 23, verse 11, he's in prison, and it says this, the following night, the Lord stood by him, which I think is pretty amazing. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God's presence with his people. Now that's, that's all the way through Scripture. It's not a new theme here. You, you go to the Old Testament and what you see is God continually showing himself to his people, whether it's a, a burning bush, whether it's a, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, showing his presence, and then with the tabernacle, build this tabernacle and camp around it to show his presence right in the middle of his people. So here we see this promise to him. Now, uh, when I started this sermon I, earlier this week, what I had down first for this point was God's presence in difficult circumstances. But then I changed my mind. I thought, no, I, I don't want to go that route. Uh, because, yes, he's present in difficult circumstances, but he's present when circumstances are not so difficult as well. You know, 
if you drive through Atlanta, you will encounter traffic, right? Now, because I lived there for 18 years and still have kids over there, we've, we've, I've been all over Atlanta many times, and uh, often you will find yourself just sitting there for no apparent reason on the highway. You say, what's going on? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't get it. I can't see anything. And then what will happen is, uh, you know, you will see coming up one side of you or the other off the road a, a bright green truck. They call it a hero unit. And hero stands for Highway Emergency Response Operator. Uh, so the hero unit comes and it goes whizzing by you and it will either uh, take care of a mechanical failure or if there's an accident, they'll get them out of the way and so on. So everybody's always happy to see the hero unit uh, come by because then you, you have hope again. Well, here's what we mustn't do. We shouldn't look at God like a hero unit. We shouldn't uh, look at him as, uh, well, I'm in trouble now. I better call for the hero unit. I'm, out of, I'm, I'm all out of hope. I'll call for the hero unit and, and so on. Well, yes, we do call for him in that way. But we need to call for him when things are apparently going well. Remember, Control is an illusion. If you think you're in control of your life, you're deluding yourself. And something will happen that you will find you're not in control. So that theme goes on through to the New Testament where we see Jesus in last words saying, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of time. His presence with his people. How can we know that? You might say, well, you know, you're still talking about Paul, and, you know, Paul had an angel. I would know he was with me if he sent me an angel. Here's what you need to know. That angel was sent for Paul, but he was sent for us to be reminded as well of his presence with his people at all time. Every week here at St. Andrews, we have people going through things that they would not choose to be going through and that they wish they weren't going through. Sometimes the only comfort we have is that he's present with us. Because we can't figure it all out. We can't know why is this, you know, why am I heading toward a shipwreck? Why are things so out of control? But we can know he's present. There's a second thing. After God's presence with his people, and that's his possessiveness of his people. Look at how he describes, how Paul Describes, for this very night, verse 23, there stood before me an angel of the God, I love this phrase, 
the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. You see, he's, he's saying, I belong to this God and that's my comfort. And he belongs to me. Not like a little idol I can put in my pocket like some of the sailors probably had. But he belongs to me. I, I worship him. He understood adoption. So it, it works both ways. Being possessed by God. And then we see his providential promise keeping. Verse 24. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And remember, back in 2311, he basically said the same thing. You must testify also in Rome. Here, here's what we can, we can pull from this is that we're not going to leave this world one moment before our work is done. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and, and uh, I've used, that's one of uh, the commentaries that I've used uh, for this series. It was written by him. It was his his sermons, which, by the way, in, in, in at least the last outline I give you, I'm going to give you a list of the commentaries and resources that I've used in case you ever want to do more study in the book of Acts. But he was known for his Bible exposition. Well, he was the pastor of the church. Really, in, in a, a lot of people's mind, he was just at the prime. The church was thriving. He, uh, he was a leader among uh, evangelical Christians and and so on, a, a very popular speaker. Uh, he was on the radio and, and so on, and authoring many books, and he got cancer, and he died within a very short time. Now, some, I have no doubt, some thought, well, he died before his time. You know, it, it's sad that you know, he lost all those maybe most productive years and he, and he was taken from us before his time. I know people say things like that. And whenever somebody who's, who's young dies or who's not very, very elderly, that kind of a phrase is often used. Well, when he wrote the, the, the commentary, he he didn't have cancer. He didn't know when he would go to be with the Lord. But, but he did say this about this very passage. He said, we can know that as long as we have work to do, God will preserve us to do it. God will not be frustrated. And if God is not frustrated, God will keep us alive to do it. And if you finish the work that God has given to you, why should you want to linger around here any longer? Isn't that right? That's how we ought to look at it. 
You know, we, we won't go one day, not one second before our work is done here on this earth. But once our work is done, what do you want to hang around the earth for when you could be with the Lord? And that's what he's saying. Now, how does God work all that out? We, we used Romans 8, 28 as a, a verse of the year a couple of years ago, which says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We're responsible beings. God showed that. Uh, Paul shows that in this section. He said, if you act irresponsibly, you jump into the water, you're going to die. You know, don't do that, and so on. But we also see God working details together to work his purpose. I want, I want to close with a, a, an account of how I've seen that in my life. A number of years ago, uh, when I was growing up, we lived in St. Louis, and it was before I was driving. My sister uh, had gone off to college and uh, to help with the expenses. My dad was, uh, had to take a second job. He was working weekends. And so on uh, most Sundays, it would be my mom and I going to church. We were going to a church that no longer was preaching the gospel. Now, I didn't care, but she got to the point where she said there's, there's something wrong here. And so um, she decided, and I said, that's fine. She decided, well, we need to go find another church. So she looked up in the phone book, um, Presbyterian churches. She looked in the same denomination. She didn't know there was any other denominations. And found the address of one. And uh, so on Saturday night, because she wasn't real comfortable driving, uh, on Saturday night... Uh, we took a ride to, to try to find that church. Well, the easy way to that church would have been to hop on the highway and go a couple of exits and get off, and we would have been right there, the one that she found that seemed to be the closest. But as I said, she, she learned to drive later in life, so she wasn't comfortable getting on the highway, um, and so we took back roads. On the way to that church... Uh, we got to a point, it was on Ballast Road in St. Louis, and I said, oh, there's a church. Oh, look, that's Presbyterian. And it was a colonial church kind of sitting up on a hill. It was called Covenant Presbyterian Church. And so uh, we drove in, she drove in there and said, well, this one's, uh, you know, even closer. Let's go to this one tomorrow. And said, I said, that's fine. I, I really didn't, could couldn't care at all, you know, if I got to go to church, I don't care where I go. So uh, we went to the church the next day. In, in the front of the church, right in the middle, it had John 3.16. And unlike the, the church where we were going that was no longer preaching the Bible, uh, when the organ began to play, people sang out. It's like our church in that way. 
And even though I didn't care what church I was in, we both got tears in our eyes and said, there's something different here. We said, well, let's keep going to this church. Well, we found out later it was a Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which uh, that was a denomination that eventually became a part of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. I eventually, uh, somebody kept asking me, so I went to youth group. It was there that I began to really understand the, you know, a, a commitment that I had made to the Lord, but I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And it was uh, there that our youth leader challenged me to consider the ministry. That was a life changer. It was in that youth group that I met Connie Latner, who we ended up getting married. I think it was a game changer for her, too. <laughs> I know it was for me. And she came to the Lord in that church. They had come from a liberal church as well. So... I got through college, and because it was in the same denomination, I went to Covenant Theological Seminary. At Covenant Theological Seminary, I uh, took every course I could from the, the man who was the specialist in church planting. I thought I would be planting a church. Uh, his name was Dr. Don McNair. And I took course after course from him and got to know him. He he got to know me and so on. Well, after seminary, I was called to be an assistant pastor in, in, in Pittsburgh and then to be a senior pastor. Uh, neither place was planting a church. It, every, uh, each of, of those, uh, at least once I was a senior pastor, was kind of rebuilding a church. Until 1988, a church over in... Atlanta, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta in Fayetteville, after their pastor resigned, uh, they put together a pulpit search committee, and one of the people on that was friends with Dr. Don McNair. And so he called him up and said, you know, here's our church, you know our church, do you know any uh, potential good matches? And my name was among those after a, a, a process. They called me to be their pastor, and I served there for 18 years. Now what that did is that uh, when this church came to be without a pastor and they began to look, they Partially, we're looking regionally, and because I was in Atlanta, I was on at least that part of their radar. But the other thing it did is it made me qualified for one of the other things they had, they had put in their qualifications for the pastor, because after I got the, the, the call, Ted Gant called me, you know, out of the blue, I thought, and... Uh, he said, we're interested in talking to you, and so on. So I looked it up, and, and one of the things it said is uh, uh, having roots in the South. That was important, that that be a part of the match. 
So I asked the committee, I said, well, you know, I, I'm from Missouri originally. And their response was, well, 20 years in the South, it, you, you'll, you'll do, you know, basically. <laughs> Something enthusiastic like that. Well, the bottom line is, as you know, that in 2006, I was called to be the pastor here. So if this church, in these years since that time, if there's anything about St. Andrews, you've received any blessing whatsoever, if your life has been touched whatsoever, one of the reasons is because my mother couldn't drive on the highway. Do you get it? That's part of it. Everything I mentioned and thousands of other details, some of which I don't even know, have brought us to this point. And every one of you can tell a similar story that has brought you here. It's not just the big things that God is involved with, but it is those details as He takes Everything about us, everything in this world that he is in charge of, which is every single atom in this whole world, to accomplish his purpose. And that's how it works. And I think it's incredible. It's amazing. But don't just be amazed at that. Take comfort in that. The, the same God of the storm who kept his promise to Paul to get him to Rome, we'll see that next week, was with him in every single circumstance that was necessary to lead up to that. And in the middle of the storm where nobody would have thought he would ever make it to Rome, he showed Paul his presence and he said, that's my plan, and my plan will not be thwarted. So take comfort that He is the God who works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that, that that is the case. We couldn't begin to accomplish your will by engineering it ourselves. Thank you that you are in control and you love us and you possess us and you're present with us and your promises will always be completed in you. May that bring us comfort, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.